just like to draw your attention to next week's SACPAW session, right back here, same time, same place. Um, Lethbridge Food Bank started out as a stopgap measure. 35 years later, what has changed? So that's the topic for next week's session. Um, and this session and other sessions, as I mentioned, are available on the SACPAW website. And while I'm talking about the SACPAW website, I just want to bring your attention um, to a survey that we're doing. So uh, SACPAW is considering modernizing our website. We know the website is receiving increased visitors, but we don't know a lot about how people are using the, the website. What information are you looking for? How often do you visit? Those kinds of things. So we're launching a survey. We've launched a survey. The survey will also collect information on what you would like to experience with the SACPOT website. Um, it takes about five minutes. It'll be up until the end of December. So please take some time to visit the surveys and uh, give us your feedback um, about that. I'll also mention that at the train on gallery for one more week is an exhibition of work by the late Van Christu. If you haven't had a chance to go and see it, uh, please do. And any proceeds raised um, will go to the Allied Arts Council of Lethbridge for educational programs. Um, in just a minute, I'll invite Bram Stramwell, or Bramwell Strain, sorry, back to uh, the stage. Um, our question and answer period will last 25 to 30 minutes. I'll invite you to join us up here at the microphone. Please keep your comments brief and your questions respectful. Um, if I'll, I'll also repeat that if you're not comfortable coming up to the microphone, you're welcome to provide me with a question that I will read. Um, and I think we'll just get started. So please join me in, in welcoming uh, Bram back to the stage. Thank you. I, I should point out, my first name is actually Bram. So very few people call me Bramwell. My mother, of course, when she's mad. Everybody knows that one, classic. And one friend when he's drunk. So other than that, nobody calls me Bram, or Bramwell, just Bram. Uh, <clears throat> the name is Doug Neal. Uh, I don't know is Winnipeg is really as bad as you say it is. Um, Have you ever lived there? For 30 years, yeah. Uh, when was the last time you were there? I'm just kidding. I'm kidding with you. Go ahead. Sorry. I love it too. I'm from, I'm from there. Well, you talked about, that was a very interesting uh, talk you gave. Um, I, you talked about what we need. Uh, we have a safe injection site in Lethbridge, and we have people that are on drugs and stuff. Uh, we had uh, drunks kick in our door in Winnipeg, or not in Winnipeg, but in, in Lethbridge here. Uh, we had people, <coughs> drugs, shot up a house next door to us. We got a call from the police to go in the basement and stay there till, we're, till we call you and come back up. I appreciate uh, you sharing those very harrowing experiences with us. Yes, and I wonder that, if you have a question. We've had a lot of that stuff. Yep. Uh, so I guess it has to do with policing. And my question is, what, what can we do 
to counteract these, these kind of things. We never had that problem in Winnipeg. Uh, and it's, it's getting yeah. worse and worse. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that question. And I, I do appreciate that those situations are happening each and every day. And at the moment, they're probably getting worse instead of better. So there, there's a couple of, of things there. If you, if you go back to what I was talking about, about that transition from 100K plus, um, the difference is that stuff actually does happen every single day in a Winnipeg or a Calgary or an Edmonton. The difference is those cities have a well-established area and I'm, I'm not being facetious here, this is fact, they have certain neighborhoods you don't go into. So if you don't want to be part of that, you don't go into those neighborhoods. We don't have that. You know? And someone will probably again correct me, but there's not a, a neighborhood in Lethbridge that you don't want to live in, right? Gold Gardens, beautiful park, right? But it's right downtown and it's in kind of that, that triangle of services that, that some of these folks use. So we haven't really, we're, we're kind of in that transition period. Now, I'm not suggesting we create a ghetto, okay? I am not suggesting that. I am suggesting we deal with the problem head on. You need to remember that the bottom of that problem are people. Whether you not, you agree with what they're doing, right? Which I don't think anyone thinks drugs are a good idea. I, I'm not seeing anyone say that, nor am I. But those are brothers, sisters. Those are kids of somebody. Some of them are mothers and fathers. So we need to remember that. We need to get them some of the help that they need. When you speak about the policing issue, that's a different one. So again, there is a police commission, so I won't delve too deep into what they're doing. But what council did support in the budget is there's slightly over $2 million for a couple of initiatives. So one of which is something called the Ambassador Watch Program, which is actually modeled off of Winnipeg model. Not I didn't bring that one here. The police chief brought that himself. So I'm not just bringing all that stuff with me. But what that does is it provides a different level. It provides a street level uh, of interaction. And it is law enforcement, i.e. it's kind of like security, if you will. Right now we have a lot of private security. Private security is fine, and I'm not damning them for what they do, but they have a limited role. They're allowed to get people to get off of a certain property. But if all you're doing is pushing the problem along, you're not, you're not dealing with the problem. The difference with the ambassador program is they have, A, that connection with the police, so there is that enforcement piece. They can get those folks to come and help out if the situation arises to that. But they also connect people to the services that they need. So if they want to stop using, if they need to get to a house, if they have whatever other issues or challenges they have, they can get those people the services they need. So that's kind of the, the genesis of that particular program, so that was supported. The other one that was supported on a more enforcement side of it was special constables. So right now what you have, my understanding is that the police, you have a lot of fully trained police officers that are doing different duties. So I'll give you for instance, right now a police officer guards the cells, right? Police officers do everything from the minor ticket to you know a homicide investigation. What special constables do is it, it brings in a tiered policing system so that some of those less enforcement duties will be done by different officers who get paid less. So there's a, there's a savings there, there's a value to that. And what it does is it also allows, and, and uh, council kept the, the staffing budget to police it the same, so it allows, I think it's 15, allows 15 more pairs of boots on the ground. So it replaces those 15 people in administrative or, or slightly less enforcement duties and gets them out onto the street. So there's two plugs to that. But the fourth thing, I can't remember what number I'm on, is uh, people that, that get arrested for trafficking need to be charged with trafficking and then dealt with in the court system accordingly. 
right? Someone brought up to me the other day, and this is, this is not my opinion, but if you supply drugs to someone and they overdose, were you an accessory to murder? I don't know, I don't wanna get into that conversation, but it's a very interesting one. What's happening now is, and we've been, uh, the mayor is, is spearheading a, a piece with the mid-sized mayors of uh, federal prosecutors is to get committed federal prosecutors, people that live in the town who deal with it every day, who then have to come in front of you here and talk about it. Why did you let that person go? Why did they get arrested and 24 hours later they're on the street? You ever wanna talk about frustration? Go speak to a police officer. They're frustrated, right? They're doing a good job, they're working things out, and then people are out. And these are not the users, right? These are not the victims of this particular thing. These are the people supplying them with the drugs. So it's not acceptable. So as a society, we have to deal with that in, in, a, in a harder way. So there, there's several angles to that question, and there's a lot of good stuff going on. A lot of these things you, uh, are in partnership, Brian, the ambassador program's in partnership with, That's you right. want me to hurry up, if don't I, you? If, Sorry. Yeah, I, I know can. this is a big one, though, and so I might be able to answer two or three questions simultaneously. Uh, it's partnership with Downtown Biz, uh, the Chamber, all sorts of things. So this is, a, this is a bigger partnership piece to that. Sorry. Half hour is not long enough. I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Thank you very much for your talk. Thank you. It's good to get a flavor of who you are. Um, <clears throat> you were talking about building right for the future. I would submit that there are ways in which the city is not building right for the future. And a an couple of examples, CASA, and the new YMCA building, now called, now called the Corban Ray Center. And um, we've missed out, the city has missed out on the opportunity of putting in solar panels and geothermal, especially in the, the new YMCA. And um, it, it's kind of a stupid place to put the YMCA because the people downtown who were using it could actually walk to it, bike to it, or take a local bus. Now you have to go out a million miles to the edge of the county to use the YMCA. So two questions. Are you going to be building all new buildings with solar panels and geothermal? Will you recommend to all builders that they have solar panel hookup in the new homes? And will the old YMCA be refurbished so it can serve the people in the center of the community? Thank you. So, so good questions. Uh, so a lot of those, I can't go backwards and tell you why decisions were made in those rooms in those particular days, so I, I can't do that. What I can tell you is, so I live on the west side, I can now walk to the YMCA. <laughs> but I didn't make the decision to put it there. Let's be clear on that. So, so there is, there is there's a certain percentage of the population that's actually gonna benefit from it being on the west side. No matter where you put it, there was gonna be a certain amount of population that, that got advantage and others that got disadvantaged. That said, and I don't wanna speak for the Y or the Y board, right, and I have to be careful because sometimes I know things I'm not supposed to share, which goes in direct contrast to open and transparent government, <laughs> but there are some things that happen in, in all of you could say, this proprietary information that I, I can't share. What I can tell you about the ATB Center, or it, it will be called the, y, it's the YMCA at the ATB Center, which will be called the Corvan Ray YMCA. So that's, if you follow that through, we got about naming rights four times, which is all good for us, right? Um, from, a, from a geothermal point of view, they, there was a reason why they didn't do that, and I'm not an engineer, so I can't totally explain it, but it did make sense to me when they, when they told me. But you would be amazed, and if you get a chance to do the tour, at actually what they recycle. So the heat from the, uh, the skating rinks, the ice plants, 
actually goes in to heat the water in the pool. So there's a whole pile of, of interesting recycle pieces in there. The cost of running that place is actually quite a bit cheaper than you, you probably think, and I, I can get you all those stats and, and details on that. Um, the, the plan for the current Y is still a little up in the air. So for those who don't know, that was built in 1968. So it was part of the Centennial Celebrations of Canada. It's built on City of Lethbridge land. And what the deal said is that as long as it operates as a YMCA, um, it's basically, I think we charge them a dollar a year or something for the lease. Uh, as long as it's a YMCA, it's theirs. Second, it's not a YMCA, it becomes ours. So guess what? That building, anybody a member at the Y? Yeah, yeah okay, me and you. Um, anybody who's been there, that building's kind of, it's not what it used to be, let me put it that way, right? Um, and now we inherit it. Anyone built anything in the 60s or done a renovation with the building that was built from 19, well, post-war until about 70, late, early 80s? Where does asbestos mean anybody? Like that, the building's got some issues and some challenges, so whether it can be repurposed or continue to serve the same purpose is a conversation that's still ongoing. Um, right now, I believe the YMCA has publicly announced that they will not be continuing operations there right now. So that's that's a wise decision. I should a why decision, not a wise decision. Boy, and English is hard. Uh, and then, uh, and absolutely, we're working with builders in all the new areas to do things that are more economically or not economically, environmentally friendly. So geothermal where we can, uh, solar, other alternative sources of uh, of heating and cooling. Absolutely. So those are some things that are mandated actually. Uh, and things that we're, we're working in partnership with developers to continue to do. So obviously being environmentally friendly is absolute key for us. Wind power, right? Well, we have a little bit of it. We should be trying to use it. That's one, if I can, I know, I know, I know, I know. We've got a good line up here. I gotta tell you guys I'm something. Use the this city is not nearly as windy as you think it is. <laughs> it's not. Uh, Dave Major, uh, thanks for your talk and uh, I appreciate you acknowledging the existence of the research station. It's often forgotten. I'd, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. The first uh, is, how would you describe your style of management? And the second part of it is, uh, how would you, what would be your strategy to, given the bureaucracy and the union situation, to change the culture in City mm -hmm. Hall? because there's at least the perception that the, uh, a lot of the workers were probably not getting any more than four and a half hours of actual work out of those guys in a day. So how would you go about yeah. moving that big yeah. organization? So first question first, uh, how do I describe my style of leadership? So I'm, I'm an inclusive leader. I, I like to think I'm a fairly good communicator. Um, but I also kind of subscribe to a theory that an old boss taught me a long time ago when she said, at the end of the day, it's not a democracy, okay. right? So management team will tell you that we're very inclusive. We talk about a lot of things, but at the end of the day, I, I have to make tough decisions and I am fully accountable to those. I understand what they mean and I can explain them to others. So I would call it inclusive is, is my management style. To get to your second point, so you had a couple of interesting things in there. So when I worked for the feds, and people used to say public servants are lazy, I thought, oh, they're talking about the province. When I worked for the province and they said people were lazy, I thought, oh, they're talking about the city. 
now, I think that is a very unfair moniker. I really do. I have worked in private sector. I, I have worked in places. Thank you. Will, will you find a place, you know, where three guys are looking down in a hole and one guy's doing the shoveling? Yes, you're going to see that. There could very well be a good reason for it, right? Perhaps not. Do we have a number of people who are employed who are not working their full to their full capacity? Absolutely. So does everybody. So we work hard to, to weed those people out, right? Move them along. Uh, we just had this conversation, did a big HR presentation the other day to council. Uh, we terminate, anyone thinks that you can't get fired from the city? You can get fired from the city. Absolutely you can. Working with the unions is absolutely key. Labor is very progressive. The, the old school labor, you know, striking and all those things, this isn't Canada Post, right? The, the, this is not who we are here, right? We, we actually have some very good union partners. They have some great ideas working together, so we need to work together. But they also understand that at the end of the day, there's management decisions and then there's, there's union, right? So we need to work with them. They're the, the membership of the unions, who are also our employees, a lot of those people are very innovative, very creative. So that's who we need to listen to. People doing that job every day, you know, that one guy down shoveling in the hole, you think he's not thinking about those three guys watching him all day long, right? And thinking of a better way to do it. I always tell people that I'm, part of my reputation is being creative or innovative, looking for different ways to do things. That's because I'm inherently lazy. Okay, think, think about that for a second. So as a kid, I grew up on a farm, right? I'd be shoveling something or other. You can fill in that blank. And I'd be thinking, there's gotta be a better way to do this, right? Why am I doing like wheelbarrow by wheelbarrow? What if I, so constantly think about that, not because I was innovative and creative, because I was lazy. There's got to be a better way to do this. So work for the sake of doing work, you know, move a pile of dirt from there to there and back and et cetera, it doesn't make any sense. I would encourage you though, when you see a group of people like that standing around or you think something is totally useless what folks are doing, there's 311 you can ask. You can email me directly and I'll find out what those people were doing. And if they were up to no good or doing nothing, I will deal with it, okay? Because I'm a taxpayer too, right? I run a big corporation. You are the shareholders of that corporation. So we need to be accountable to you. So I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but I'm often saying there's a reason why that is, right? So, but those people are our partners and, and the culture thing's gonna take a, a little while to shift, but nothing's impossible. Colleen Quintel, first time speaker at SACPA, so I'm a little nervous up here. But you need to know that I'm a former national representative for the Canadian Union of Public Employees. Huh. And I stand here very proud of the city of Lethbridge's employees, of which my husband is one. Um, whether they're the grass cutters, um, the fellows that go out and inspect your houses to make them safe, or the ones that build our traffic system so that we have Absolutely. the lights on Mayor McGrath work or don't work, yep. depending on which side of that argument you sit on. I believe that we have a good um, public servants that give their all, all of them, even the three standing, watching around that hole. Um, my uh, question for you today is regarding your marks regarding private uh, sector or contracting out versus public sector. You prefaced it by saying you would save on wages and pensions. I look around this room and I'm one of them. I think that uh, by far the majority of us here collect a pension and are proud if we collect a public pension. So I would urge you not to contract out because you're saving on wages and pensions, but whether there's a good reason to do so. Can you explain your remarks a little further? Well, absolutely I can. 
Absolutely. So first of all, thank you very much for your public service, number one. Number two, at the end of the day, regardless of whether or not you agree with me, government is a business. Okay? There are certain things we provide service to that we are not going to make money off and we shouldn't be making money off. Those are lost leaders. Those are public services that you pay for and you should get. Number two, it is not my job or the city's job to provide employment. We, in and of ourselves, are not the economic drivers. So I'm not suggesting that we would pay people less and cut their wages, et cetera. That's not what I'm saying at all. But fact is, when I contract out, I have a fixed cost. Right? And I'm not saying we're going to contract out. You didn't hear me say that. I said we were going to look at things to see if it was more cost efficient or provided us a better service to contract out. That's what I said, number one. Number two is, when you do contract something out, you have a fixed cost. So if I'm going to pay a million dollars for grass cutting, I get a million dollars worth of grass cutting. I don't have to pay for sick time. I have to pay for vehicles for those people, replacement vehicles, the gas for the vehicles. I don't have to pay for any of that stuff, including benefits and pension. Their employers do. So theoretically, they would be getting those things from the flip side of, of that employment, right? So that's where sometimes there's a savings to us in that particular place. You and I are fundamentally going to disagree on this one. I understand that, right? I understand that. But again, this goes to my point. You have the right to be heard, and I have the right to say where we are, and you have the right to understand. End of the day, we may not agree. My job is not to reduce the public service here. That is not my mandate. But if we're doing things that we shouldn't be doing, the private sector should be doing, and Max Center, we provide a catering service. Should the city of Lethbridge be in the catering business? I ask you. Well, I think Somebody those, should be, but should it be us? Those are some really good points, and I'm, I'm going to jump in really quick with a question from the floor here, but I'll, I'll keep it quick. Um, in order to have a city staff uh, and managers that are representative of Lethbridge's population, uh -huh. will you increase hiring and advancement of people from equity-seeking groups, including Indigenous people, women, racialized populations, LGBTQ, um, people with disabilities, or newcomers? Yes. Excellent. That's great. So let's just talk about that for a second. So um, I believe in merit-based hiring, okay? People that have the ability to do the job. I believe in promoting people that show the greatest merit to be promoted. So you can't fix some of the systematic issues that we have overnight, right? So I'll give you an example. So why, so federal government's very big on this, so I'm very used to this as, as a manager having to answer those questions. So one of the first things I asked for was what we call our employment equity stats. Okay, show me where we're at in terms of hiring. Because you want to be representative of the population. That's the whole concept behind it. That should happen normally, right? In today's day and age, that should happen. So one of the first ones that blew me away was I asked about indigenous employees. So you may be surprised to find out that we have four people that self-recognize as Indigenous. Uh, just in case anyone didn't hear me, I said four. And not only do we have four, they gave me their first names. So we have 1,100 and f yeah, 1,100 plus full-time employees and they named four people. That's not representative of the population. Uh, women in non-represented, we have, we have a pretty good male-female gender base, but in, some, in what we'll call non-traditional occupations uh, or in management, it's not 
it's not equal everywhere you go. Persons with disabilities, uh, same thing. Uh, visible minorities, um, same thing. So you should be representing the population. So, but we will do it based off merit, um, not based solely on the qualification of, of who you are as a physical being. Graham Greenlee is my name. Uh, last summer, the beaver population really bloomed between uh, the mouth of Six Mile Cooley Creek and the south end of the Country Club, Club Golf Course. Do you know if the city still contracts a trapper to control beaver populations in the River Valley? Well, this will be a quick answer too. No. <laughs> I can find that out for you though. If you, before we go, if you can pass on your name and, and add an email address or telephone number, I'll, I'll follow up with you. Hi, Brooke Cully, thanks for your presentation. I don't want you to predetermine the outcome of maybe something you're gonna get into, <laughs> but I wanna know your personal viewpoint sitting in the seat you're in on when it would be um, worthwhile for the city to look at a ward system in our electoral uh, selecting of councillors. Okay, so uh, does everybody know who I work for? <laughs> so I, I am actually the sole employee of Marin Council. So I have nine employers other than every citizen of the, the, the city, obviously. But in terms of who I report to, I have nine, one of which is sitting directly in front of me. Here's what I know, and I'm not predetermining anything. 2016, we had a community assembly on the matter. It came out with the results it came out with, and we do not have a ward system. Ward systems are interesting. I, I come from a ward system. I've only ever lived in places that had that. So for those who, who don't know or may be questioning what a ward system is, you, you represent a geographic area, right? So whatever the question would come or the concern would come would normally come through a counselor for that geographic area. We have a eight most popular, if I can say that that way, but so the first eight people that get the most votes get in. So what happens is, I think we have, I think we're three, four, and one how it works, four, four, three west side, three south, one in the north. So that, you know, that's, it's not geographically dispersed. So I'll, what happens is instead of lots of times, all counselors will get that question, right? And then counselors kind of pick more issue-based interest than their population-based interest or their situational-based interest from a ward because they don't have that ward. So what could happen theoretically is some people are underrepresented or no one will take up their cause which is why I think we get a lot more direct inquiries to the city proper to look into some issues that might come through a, a counselor. Again, that might be a, a, an outcome of size, right? But I think we need to hear that from, first and foremost, from citizens that that's what they want. Implementing it's, you just gotta pick an election and implement it, that part's not that hard. You know, I, I tend to oversimplify, but you know, that part's not that hard. Getting to the decision pre-election and deciding which election you're gonna put in, that's a choice. You know, that, that's where it comes in. But we have to hear that from citizens. It was, did that get, it was in the budget, did, what happened with that? Money got defeated, yeah, I didn't get a seconder, that's what happened, yeah. Deferred, yeah, deferred to have a look at it, you're right. Yep, that's exactly. That's right, who this gentleman happens to be on that committee. So I'm gonna defer the question, ask him. Hi, my name is Laurie Schultz. Thank you very much for your presentation. My question is, 
what is the city doing or what is the city's strategy to engage with other jurisdictions, provincial, federal, to specifically address the needs of the uh, drug addiction issues? Yep. So specifically, what is the city doing to engage with Alberta Justice around drug courts and with whoever has jurisdiction now over the addictions uh, detox centers? Specifically, yep. what are they doing? And you may not have time to answer this, but I'm curious what Manitoba had with respect to these very services provincially. Yeah, okay, so that's a, that's a really good question. So one of the first things I did when I got here was realize that uh, our response to the crisis was very reactionary. And that's understandable, first time we've been in the situation, but we were reacting. We were literally, I think we had four different groups picking up needles. That was our response to the drug crisis. I'm not being critical, that's just where we were. It's just fact. So quickly what we did is we then had, the mayor has a leadership coalition on opiates, great group of people doing good stuff. What we quickly realized we were missing was the community voice. So we are hearing about it. So we went out and we did community consultations. They were 100% attended. Their place was packed every single time. And we looked for solutions. So we said to the community, what's the solution to, to help some of these things? What quickly came out of that is, that, so those two pieces of the puzzle are going to form a strategic plan or an action plan. I hate to say strategic because it's more of an action plan um, that's going to an ad hoc committee of council to deal with this issue. But what we're doing is we did all that work beforehand and a major piece of that work was um, program and service mapping and more specifically to see where there was gaps. So here, here's the major issue you have. And again, I'm, I'm probably oversimplifying, but we put in the safe consumption site, but we didn't put any of the supports around it, right? So you can go there and use, but if you want to get off of drugs, there was nowhere to go. If you want to safely sober up, there was nowhere to go. We didn't have the community or the ambassador watch, but we didn't have a lot of these services in place. So that's quickly showing. So now what we're doing is instead of going to the government with hat in hand saying, help us, and they'll say, well, what can we do for you? And they'll say, well, well you know, help us. Now we have a fact-based plan. So we have that map that says what we're missing, right? Supportive housing, in-talks, detox, some other stuff, it goes right to affordable housing, to employment services, to prevention, right? Let's not, never forget prevention. If people never started, you wouldn't have this problem, right? So say no to drugs, sounds super simple, but what can we do in this, in this first part of prevention? Then of course there's the enforcement pillar, right? And all these things have to work in conjunction. So what we're doing is that's the, the response to government, and trust me, provincial government has hurt us. And if you don't believe me, stay tuned. Not, you won't have to wait very often. 24 hours from today, you should have a really good idea of what I'm talking about. They've heard what we said because we're fact-based. We didn't whine about it. We didn't complain about it. We took leadership. We brought people together. We did the research and we said, here's the facts. Here's what we need. So don't give me another hammer or try and change a tire. We went to the people with the right tools and said, here's what we need. And we got a response. We'll, Trust I me, think you're, we'll you're going to see that. With one last question sure. here. We're getting just slightly over time, but... Yes, uh, I'll be brief. Uh, Terry Shillington is my name. Thank you for uh, uh, informative and uh, engaging presentation. Thank you. Uh, I thought somebody else would ask this question, but can you help us explain, uh, help us understand how we came to be the second highest taxed municipality in Alberta? Uh, is this poor management or expensive infrastructure or building bridges or how, do, how are we to understand how we got to this point? Yeah. Yeah, and I actually was asked that question at my table. Um, 
So again, you will very rarely see me go backwards and, and I'm not here to criticize anything that happened before. I can tell you we are in tremendous fiscal shape. We're in tremendous physical shape and that's a very good thing. We are probably the envy of a lot of uh, municipalities, a lot of different jurisdictions because of what we have and because of our financial position. So that's a great thing, but we need to stay there now. One of the beauties is, the question was asked to me what happened to Winnipeg, and with all due respect, trust me, it's not as good as some people might remember it is. One of the issues they did is for political short-term gain, they deferred a lot of maintenance. Okay, and, and remember, I was also in charge of the highways department for Manitoba, and also the schools department, so I'm, I know what I'm talking about here. They deferred a lot of things. When you defer maintenance, right, you don't want to replace the shingles on your house when they need to be replaced, you can take a risk. But once that water starts coming in, the whole thing starts to fall apart. So that's what they did. So what they did is they deferred so many things for somebody else to deal with. We haven't done that. When we build something here, we actually put money aside for something called life cycle costs. So we actually put money aside in each budget and for each building as they get approved so that we can maintain them. So that's a really good thing. It's self-sustaining, right? We, we do not have a deficit issue. A gentleman came to council one day and said that if we had um, $200 million deficit, you know, we should be embarrassed. We're, we're in horrible shape. We have a $2 million, and he referred it kind of in, in conjunction to his own house. And, I, and I'm not belittling the gentleman, but what he doesn't realize is we have a $200,000 mortgage on billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of infrastructure. So we own it all. And not only do we own it, we have the money to take care of it. So we're in really good fiscal shape. That's how we kind of got to where we are in terms of increases because those things need to be paid for. So the key is to maintain that, right? So some folks will say, well, what's next? Now you built the ATB center, you built whatever, what's the next big project? I think we need to think long and hard about what's next. Maybe nothing's next for a little while, right? Maybe we just maintain what we have. The good news is we have enough money to maintain what we have. Cost of living, all those types of things will slowly go up over time and we'll have to adjust. But that is the idea is to look at what we have, live within our means for lack of a better term, um, but maintain the, the infrastructure that we have. So that's the key. So that's unlike a lot of other jurisdictions. A lot of other jurisdictions, other piece someone, uh, this gentleman asked me was around uh, utilities. So our utilities make money. That's kind of what they do. But we reinvest it in that utility. Other jurisdictions will siphon that money off and spend it on something else which is great until you need to fix your utility, right? So that, that if, you, if you hear me say one thing today, it's we're in really good shape, and I believe we can maintain the shape we're in without increasing taxes anymore. So what will happen is we'll be number 23 this year, maybe 22 next year, 18, 16, we'll drop, but not because we cut taxes, because we're just doing better with what we have. Thank you.